we are still thinking that we are doing the sitting. We are breathing and we are bowing. But what if there's a moment of translucent brilliance where you just are not there? And I'm sure you've experienced this, where you are sitting and everything falls away. As Dogen put it, mind, body falls away. That was what his teacher in China said that caused his awakening. Drop mind and body. And then breathe. To have the breath, not your choice. Now I am going to inhale or exhale. But just to have the breath breathing you to experience that. Just this breath of the universe coming through you. Shinge Sherry Shayat, Roshi, began formal Zen practice at the Zen Studies Society in 1967. She served as co-director of the first residential community at Dai Bosatsu Zendo from 1974 to 1976, when she moved to Syracuse and began leading the Zen Center there. She received lay ordination from Maureen Stewart Roshi in 1985 and full ordination from Edo Shimano Roshi in 1991. She was installed as abbot of the Zen Center of Syracuse in 1996, received Dharma transmission from Edo Roshi in 1998, and in 2008 was authorized as a Roshi or Zen master and given the name Shinge, meaning heart, mind, flowering. In addition to her work as a Zen teacher, Shinge Roshi is an award-winning writer and editor of several books, and her articles and reviews have appeared in numerous publications. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have developed a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So Shinge Roshi, I, well, I want to thank you for coming on. And I wanted to start with this idea of the vow. And, you know, I've heard people talk about the vow. You, you talk about the vow a lot. Um, and there was this one, <laughs> this one part where I remember you saying, you've got to become destitute or it was something along those lines. And I just was, uh, my heart sank a little bit because uh, I just, it feels hard to get there. And 
Anyways, I just wondered if you could say a little bit about why this vow is so important and then maybe a little, you know, in the direction of how we get so to cut away so far. Yeah, you know, one of the ancient teachers said, Zazen practice itself is not difficult if you have a vow. Vowing is a question of saying there's something bigger than the I, me, mine. I'm going to open to it. I'm going to vow to give myself over to it because I don't know. That little I can never really be a good, dependable guide as we come to see the more we practice. And so vowing to let go of the self-orientation, the self-absorption is really important. And as Buddhists, we are vowing to be of service, to become bodhisattvas. That's our training. So everything we do comes back at us in this way, this karmic way. And if we're vowing, it comes back as an increasing tolerance for discomfort and an increasing wisdom and generosity. So it is really a key aspect of our practice. You know, your comment about sit, breathe, bow, sit, breathe, vow. When I was first um, creating the podcast and showing a couple teachers, you know, what, what I was thinking about, one of the teachers thought I said, sit, breathe, vow. And she, she actually got a little disappointed when I said, no, no, it's bow. And she was like, oh, I like it the other way. <laughs> but, but you know, Ian, it's the two are one. You mm. cannot bow without a vow. Otherwise, it becomes a mere exercise. Yeah. You cannot vow with a V without this inner bowing. Mm. And the, it's not limited to the Buddhist tradition, of course. Um, you, you're giving yourself over. Not my will, but thine. So you must have started at some place, though. I mean, what brought you to this, to this place where you were saying, I am going to, I'm going to sit here until it becomes, until I'm destitute so that finally there's a breakthrough. Um, like many people who are drawn to this practice, I think it was dukkha. It was suffering. Mm. I had a very difficult childhood, um, didn't understand why things were so um, just traumatic. All of a sudden, my, um, my, my father had been killed in World War II when I was a year and a half old, and my mother remarried, and uh, the person she remarried was a brilliant artist and... and um, very inspiring in many ways, but also suffered, I would now say, looking back uh, from mental illness and was quite violent. And I, could, I didn't know what to make of this. I was four years old when she remarried and suddenly my life went from, uh, you know, being the adored pet of my grandparents and aunts and uncles to being uh, 
traumatized nearly every day by mm. someone I just couldn't understand. And I finally got to a point where <clears throat> I we were living in, in western New Jersey in a beautiful area, Hunterdon County, went out and sat under my favorite tree. And my tree enveloped me. And before I knew it, the entire universe and I were one. I was breathing the tree's breath, everything that we have read about, of course, I hadn't read anything about it then, was what I was experiencing. And later on, when I started reading, when I was in eighth grade, we had a passage in a world culture textbook, and oh, there was this little thing about Zen Buddhism, and I just was, it was as though all the lights in the room went on. And uh, like the comic book, you know, light bulbs, mm. this is what I'm doing. Because I found that that was the one way that I could let go of that personal sense of, of oppression and grief and anger and all of the emotions that were so often flooding me that they would just let, um, I could let them go and receive this uh, beautiful sense of oneness. And so I, I was meditating from, I guess, about the age of seven on from time to time when things were really bad. Um, that was what I did. And when they were okay, too, uh, it just felt wonderful to be able to sit down and stay still. I don't know how I knew to do that. But um, anyway, then, of course, you know, I read... Um, Alan Watts, The Way of Zen, and uh, I read Siddhartha and the story of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, and it was also resonant. So I determined, well, um, this is a practice that I want to take up formally. I don't know, maybe I have to go to Japan. But the next, uh, the next point came when I went away to Vassar College and there weren't any courses back in 1961. You know, you could barely find any any literature on Buddhism. But I was lucky enough to go to the library, and there were D.T. Suzuki's three essays in Zen, and uh, those those volumes meant so much to me. And then, little by little, other books became available. So when I um, when I graduated, I lived in New York City and met. Uh, Lou Nordstrom, my first husband, and we decided to get married. And I said, Lou, how would you like to get married in a Zen ceremony? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to bring my love life and my spiritual life together, right? Yeah. And that's how we began. Um, we went to uh, the, we couldn't find any any place. We went to the phone book and looked under Z, and sure enough, Zen Study Society was just a few blocks away on the <laughs> west side where we were living. And and uh, we met uh, the young monk at that time, Tyson, Edo Shimano, and told him. And he looked at Lou with his huge afro and me with my tiny mini dress and said, mm, uh, let's, let's, ha let's have some tea. And by the end of the time that we drank tea together and spoke of this and that he seemed to feel it was okay and we set a date for maybe a couple of months down the road and it turned out he said it would be very auspicious because 
Hakun Yasutani Roshi would be in town and he would perform the ceremony. So that's how we got started sitting. It's certainly a a, a practice that, well, it, it appeals to a particular type of person that seems to have a certain hunger. Well, don't forget the reason we went there to get married was I wanted to bring my hunger uh-huh. to pursue a formal practice of Zen together right. with the man that I was in love with and wanted to get married there, in other words, at a Zen temple because right. of my own hunger. And he was a Western philosopher and didn't share that particular mode until later after we were married a few couple of years. And so how was this hunger? Do you remember what how it was sort of manifesting for you at the time? You were, you were falling in love, you were in the city. Um, and yet there was still this big question for you. Uh, even many years before that, uh, the I was interested in philosophy. I was a philosophy minor at Vassar College and read a lot of existentialism and early Socratic, pre-Socratics. And, um, and I remember Voltaire was a big influence. And one of the questions in a book by him had to do with which is most important or most fundamental, truth or happiness? And for me, it was truth. I wanted to come into my own truth that was universal truth, not just something personal that could ebb and, and shift, but I was very deeply um, led to this feeling of mm, of spiritual philosophical wisdom that i knew was the most important thing so now you're a teacher yourself uh you have you have a lot of people guiding including my my upstairs neighbors mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who adore you which is such an amazing coincidence uh how has the practice shifted for you now that you're teaching other people, now that you're sort of responsible for guiding them and also knowing at the same time that, you know, ultimately they have to be responsible for themselves? Like, how does that appear for you now? I'm always learning. And I think the most important thing uh, about teaching is challenging oneself and presenting, uh, for example, presenting uh, a talk on a koan, a case in one of the collections. And I may have done that case with a teacher before or two teachers, but I go back to it and there's all kinds of new insight there. And then um, working with students in, in private interviews, we call doksan or sanzen, um, Things come up for them, and I try to be not only uh, about the formal koan, but about the life experience of that student that is coming through the koan, that is building to a point of pressure and breakthrough, and that's uh, very exciting. And then I think also the Western concerns for psychology and um, 
a kind of uh, less hierarchical way of acting uh, in the role of teacher uh, can be certainly very important to the way I, I proceed with my students. Well, that's a really interesting point. Like, how do you see, you know, now that you're, um, you're able to teach however you like, you're <laughs> Roshi now, um, how, how do you, how have you sort of changed it and adapted it for this American context? And, you know, you've had a sort of very traditional teacher in, in a certain way. You, and then you, you also studied with Maureen Stewart mm. and um, so you've had men and women as teachers and, and I'm curious about learning from them and also how you see yourself in, in terms of training the next generation of teachers. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate to have someone who is quite formal in Yasutani Roshi, mm. Someone who is young and, and kind of finding his own way in, at the time it was Taishan, later Edo Roshi, and someone who had a really amazing ability to come from the depths of profundity in ways that were often quite iconoclastic in Soa Nakagawa Roshi. And uh, he loved being in America because People didn't expect anything of him the way the establishment in Japan did. He was so free with us. There are many stories about him, but just for an example, I remember once sitting at the monastery around the dining room tables at, uh, must have been a morning meeting after we had finished breakfast and we're having our tea and coffee. And he got up on top of the table and took off his robe and said something about... um, you must love yourself. And he was rubbing his, his skin and his hara. And he, he himself really enjoyed language so much and the ways in which um, words could be slightly different in meaning and almost the same in sound. So he was saying L-O-V-E and R-U-B at the same time. <laughs> So to, to have someone demonstrate with such a lightness of being and yet a, a, a depth of transmission, this really caring for the precious body that we have been given. And, and we, this was a, just shown so directly and intimately. And uh, so I, I'll never forget the teachings from Soen Roshi in particular, um, that perhaps had less to do with with formal koan work, but everything to do with just cutting through to the essence. And Maureen was really wonderful to work with. We had five uh, years together after um, my son was born in 81. Yes, so... I started going to session at Cambridge Buddhist Association when he was, I think, three or four. And we had known each other, she and I, for many years. We both started at the New York Zendo in Manhattan. Mm. She moved to Cambridge. And then I started going from Syracuse to Cambridge for session and bringing her here to lead us in weekend sessions. And uh, she... 
and I, because of our long friendship, worked together in a very different way, which was um, not so, uh, it, it didn't have that student-teacher level of difference. It was much more intimate. And um, she was, a, she gave wonderful talks, and I began working on the book Subtle Sound of her teachings just before she died. She died in 1990. And um, she was a very important influence for me because there was that kind of camaraderie and um, coming from uh, the experience of a woman who was living a lay life with a husband and children. The children grew up, of course. Later she was divorced, but... That was her context, along with having been a concert pianist of uh, great, really um, amazing um, renown, and studying with Nadia Boulanger in France. and So she brought a, a fullness of life that I think many Japanese masters might not have been able to do in quite the same way. So I do feel very fortunate. You know, I want to pick up on a thread right here in the sense that, you know, I think when I heard you say that word destitute in the, in the video I watched, um, but then you speak of the full life. And I think that's where it sort of impacted that word hit me. And I was just like, ugh. Uh, and so when you're saying destitute, you're not talking about the, the loss of richness know anything but you know you don't know you're rich when you're caught up in it all and owned by it mm. the richness comes when you can get out of the way as i was saying earlier and <clears throat> when everything isn't filtered through the <clears throat> small self when you can let it all go and meet it completely as it comes to you as life offers you Every single moment is a miracle, and so often we're not there for it. So being destitute means getting rid of all that encumbering nonsense. So you can really be here for your life, fully in your life, with everyone in your life. <laughs> and I feel, I feel a little bit like the student in some of the, your stories. About, it's just like, but I don't get it. Um, because you know why people feel that way. They think mm. there's something to figure out. Mm. They can't figure it out. It's not about the intellectual solving of a riddle. It's about getting down, letting go, breathing. Hello, Ian. Breathe. Mm. Right? Sit, breathe, bow. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. And when we feel intimidated by things that are happening and we can't really understand what someone has just said, it's because we are still thinking that we are doing the sitting. We are breathing. And we are bowing. But what if there's a moment of translucent brilliance where you just are not there? and I'm sure you've experienced this, where you are sitting and everything falls away 
as Dogen put it, mind, body falls away. That was what his teacher in China said that caused his awakening. Drop mind and body. And then breathe. To have the breath, not your choice. Now I am going to inhale or exhale. But just to have the breath breathing you to experience that. Just this breath of the universe coming through you. And then the bowing is just gratitude, just pure gratitude. Tears come. So following that thread of who is doing this or, or who is not doing this, you were recently, you recently shared this, um, you recently compared where we are in a nation, you know, those who are listening to this podcast right now, we're in the middle of the, of the pandemic. And you shared this story of, um, well, I know it as Nong Chum's cat mm-hmm. uh, and sort of variations, but it's the, it's the cat that gets sliced in two because of the monks are arguing. And I have to interrupt you. It's yes. Not, it's I, not as soon as I monks. said that, I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Because the monks were arguing nonsense, holding this cat and saying, "Say a word and yeah. I'll save the cat." They had been arguing, and he didn't kill the cat because of their argument. He killed the cat because no one could come forth in perfect freedom. Right. Everyone was bogged down in that dualism. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, and that's actually a very, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that's not right. But you, would have, you said it way better than I would have. And then you compared our nation to the cat mm. and COVID-19 as the teacher. Mm. And juxtaposed it against this you know, this cry for people to want to return to normal. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, what? Why do that? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, what can we do that saves us at this moment? Yes, you know, normal has not been so helpful for most of the people in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this 1% of 1% controlling everything. And yeah. people are dying of hunger in our own country too. And the you other. Know, uh, the coronavirus has really shown us uh, inequalities and racism in every aspect of inequity and um, shame, really, as a nation. And if we think about getting back to normal as a way of just, you know, returning to what didn't work and that has destroyed the planet, that's why we have this virus, right? Climate mm. crisis. Greed, anger, and ignorance. So, yeah, I, I tried to make that association. And, um, and of course, the arguing of the red and the blue and the monks of the Eastern Hall and the monks of the Western Hall. Can we just say right now, stop and look and see what it is that has brought this situation about? Where, where, what is your ignorance? What are you ignorant of right now? If we could say that to people and, and, and have some sense of rapport about that and around that, well, we can start with our own Buddhist practitioners. We're more likely to listen. 
and whether that has any um, usefulness into the broader perspective of current affairs. I don't know, but it's the only way I know of to make, to bring this practice into daily life. We have to, right? We have a responsibility. We have a life off the cushion that is the life on the cushion in actuality, right? In activating what we have come to understand or or see in the wisdom of Zazen. And I loved the way that you set it up as, because maybe you're quite familiar with that, the, um, that gate with a cat. Mm. And maybe you've even allegedly, you know, you've given an answer acceptable to the teacher, you know? And then, you know, by setting it up that way, it's, you're pointing to the story that actually exists behind it, which is, you know, give me the, you know, say something that's going to solve, mm-hmm. that's going to save. Save, yeah. Save the cat. Save all beings, right? Mm-hmm. So in a way, this this scary, bloody story is the most compassionate koan of all. Mm-hmm. It's calling upon us to awaken and bring that awakening into every activity and really see what we need to do in terms of resolution this particular moment we're in i think there was another point you also made which is you know it sort of highlights this or or i don't know if it it exas ex- i always have trouble with that word exasper exacerbates <laughs> exactly i don't know why that word always because it does exacerbates the this american individualism and you know we call that freedom right i think that's an important point to look at right everybody wants to have this don't tread on me don't tell me what to do i alone can be the one to decide for myself what i want and need and it's very important to understand freedom as the outcome of disciplined and responsible practice. That's our Buddhist way. We cannot be free as long as we are held or bound by this kind of separate selfhood, as the Diamond Sutra puts it. Uh, So to really find this ultimate awakening as our birthright, as Master Hakuin said in his Song of Zazen, he quoted a, a, a well-known sutra. He starts this Song of Zazen. Sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhas. Fundamentally, that's what we are. How do we start acting that way? How do we grow up, you know, mature into who we truly are? If we can't do that, I'm afraid that things are just going to continue in this downward spiral. And we see it politically. We see it from the point of view of the climate crisis in all manner of ways. You know, economic injustice, racism, all of it. And we, we can't shut our eyes to it. 
we have to have this open heart. We have to have Avalokiteshvara guiding us and saying, feel this pain, feel these beings who are suffering and know that it's your responsibility. You have to respond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Shinge Roshi encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Zen Studies Society at zenstudies.org or the Zen Center of Syracuse at zencenterofsyracuse.org. And I'll put both of those links in the show notes. I've also included uh, links to three books that Shinge Roshi brought out. They include Eloquent Silence, the teachings of Nyogen Senzaki, Subtle Sound, the Zen teachings of Maureen Stewart, and Endless Vow, the Zen path of Soen Nakagawa. You'll find everything in the show notes, so just come and click on them there. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen Study Group for only $7 by using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup, and don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing to the podcast and uh, leaving a review. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.